we are in Acts chapter 3. Now, <clears throat> in Acts chapter 2, Kevin did a fantastic job at the end of Acts chapter 2 talking about the early church community. But before that, two weeks ago, uh, we saw how Peter and the apostles point to the coming of the Holy Spirit, this event that happens at Pentecost where they're speaking in tongues and the flames separate out above each of them. So Peter and the apostles point to that coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost as evidence that Jesus had indeed been exalted to the right hand of the Father. And in Luke's terminology, the author of, of, of Acts, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke, we read in Luke 22, verse 69, he puts it this way. He said that Jesus had indeed been seated at the right hand of the power of God. And it was by Christ's power and authority and because of his completed sacrificial work on the cross for our sins that he was uh, able to send the Spirit, to pour out his Spirit on his followers, which is, again, what we looked at at Pentecost in chapter 2. Now, in today's passage in chapter 3, we're we're once again going to see Christ's incredible power on display in, in a healing miracle. In fact, it's the first miracle we see Uh, in terms of what the apostles actually do miraculously in the book of Acts. And so we're going to see a healing miracle today, and that is going to provide even further evidence that Jesus Christ is indeed exalted to the right hand of God. Now, who's excited about the new Spider-Man movie? Oh, at least a couple. This is is not going to get the gross uh, profits they're hoping for if this is the case around the world. Uh, I don't know, maybe you get excited about Marvel movies, you know, I do sometimes, um, all, all the time, my wife can call me out, she's here today to call me out, um, but I, I think our culture, and, and maybe you'd argue this, but I think our culture is obsessed with the idea of certain people having special powers, Now, what do I mean by that? I mean, just think about Harry Potter, just think about, yeah, you can, you can be excited, that's fine. Harry Potter, Anakin Skywalker, we just watched one of the Star Wars movies the other day. Anakin Skywalker, who was miraculously conceived without a father. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Okay, yeah. Harry Potter, Anakin Skywalker, Lord Lloyd Garmadon. Lucas knows, you know Brantner, the, uh, the green ninja. You guys, if you watch Ninjago or Ninjago, I don't even know how to pronounce that. Uh, and then fi- Peter Parker is another great example. And, and uh, again, he's got a movie coming out. So we think about these, these individuals with these special powers, and we really get excited about it. But, you know, ironically, I think many of the biggest fans of Star Wars or uh, Harry Potter or the Marvel Cinematic Universe, of which I am, but I think many of those fans are also convinced that the quote-unquote real world is merely material, merely physical, And they reject the idea completely of anything spiritual or supernatural. And so, ironically enough, many of those people are going to spend the Christmas break, as I probably will to some degree, geeking out over uh, these individuals with with, uh, these fantastic special powers that are fictional without being compelled to worship by, by looking at the one who truly had power. Uh, the Christ child, God the Son incarnate this Christmas. And and I think that's going to be ironic. The reason I say all that is that as Christians, 
I'm not going to assume everybody in this room is at that place, that you've bowed your knee to Christ, that you've accepted him as your Lord and Savior, but um, I hope you're considering his claims, and I would love to talk to you about that, especially around Christmas and Easter. A lot of times people start thinking, what do I believe about Jesus? What do I believe about what Scripture says? But if you are a Christian, it's important to note that at times we can feel foolish when we try to explain our belief in a Savior who is supposedly up in heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father. And we can feel pressured to discount the biblical accounts of miracles in Scripture, even downplaying the resurrection of Jesus Christ itself, being the greatest display of God's power. And I think those doubts and those temptations can seriously damage our Christian witness. And that's what we're talking about in the book of Acts, folks, our Christian witness. And as Christians, we, we must see the world differently. First of all, instead of dividing up all reality into these dichotomized categories of, of natural on the one hand and, and supernatural on the other hand, everything's natural until something supernatural happens, we need to embrace the fact, and this is biblical, that everything exists, everything that exists in creation was created and is sustained by the power of God himself. And specifically, it's attributed to Jesus Christ, the Word. Sustaining, keeping our molecules together. I mean, from quantum mechanics to uh, astrophysics, from the human brain to human childbirth, even life itself, they all point to, they all bear the mark of the incredible power of God who sustains all of reality regardless of whether he chooses to operate inside or outside the parameters, the bounds that we call the laws of nature. It's all spiritual and physical, supernatural and natural, all right? I want to emphasize that point because today we're looking at a miracle in Scripture. So the big idea for today is really this. It's that Christ empowers his people so that we can experience the power of Christ and explain the power of Christ to others. In other words, Christians are meant to showcase the power of Christ for an unbelieving world. The church is meant to showcase the power of Christ for an unbelieving world. And sometimes that involves what we call miracles, which is what we see in today's passage. But you know what? I would guess that most of us in the room have have never instantaneously healed a paralyzed person or instantaneously healed a person born blind and and given sight to their eyes. I'm not saying miracles don't happen. I think they happen all the time. But what I'm saying is most of us, if we haven't experienced that, we may start to think we haven't experienced the power of God. We may start to think we haven't experienced the power of Christ in our lives, and there could be nothing further from the truth. If we are followers of Christ, indwelled by the same Holy Spirit that came to indwell the church at Pentecost in Acts chapters 2, then I guarantee you that you have experienced the power of Christ at work in your life. And today's passage helps us to explain our Christian experience in a way that God willing draws other people to himself, that draws other people to Christ. So first of all, as Christians, we will experience the power of Christ. I'm not saying we should or we might. I'm saying that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you will at some level, experience the power of Christ. 
As we trust in Him, His power will be revealed in and through us, and it will be recognized by others if it's truly His power at work. So first, the power of Christ will be revealed in Christians. This is what I mean by a showcase. So let's look at how that happens in the experience of of two of the apostles, Peter and John. So I want to go back through uh, verses 1 through 8. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour. That's 3 p.m. our time. The hour of prayer. There's 9 a.m. prayers and 3 p.m. prayers. And they're going up at 3 p.m. And a man who had been unable to walk from birth was being carried, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, one of the gates leading into the temple courts, in order for him to beg for charitable gifts from those entering the temple grounds. There was no, uh, you know, um, there was nothing if you were disabled physically, if you were paralyzed If you could not walk and could not make a living, you were destitute in these days, okay? And so people, out of the kindness of their heart, would take him and just set him outside the temple courts at a place where he could beg alms. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple grounds, he began asking to receive a charitable gift. But Peter, along with John, looked at him intently and said, look at us. And he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not have silver and gold. We know why. Because in Acts chapter 2 at the end, it tells us they all sold what they had and were giving to all the people in the church that had need, okay? So he's not lying about this. I do not have silver and gold, he says. But what I have, what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And grasping him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And I I think it's so interesting to note, think about this. This is not long after Jesus was crucified and resurrected in Jerusalem, okay? It was 10 days after his ascension that the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. So here we are, uh, not long after this, and how many times did Jesus go to Jerusalem? How many times did Jesus go to the temple courts? And yet it's interesting that that Jesus could have healed this paralyzed man. He was there from, from his birth begging charitable alms, and yet Jesus went to the Father saying, I've done everything you've given me to do, and yet there was still a paralyzed guy being dropped off at the beautiful gate. Why? I think he left that to his followers so that his power and authority would be revealed once again long after his resurrection and ascension. And I think he he still does that. Second, the power of Christ will be recognized by non-Christian people. And of course, we see this in verses 9 through 11. Luke writes, And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him. They knew him. They saw him as they went in and out of the temple daily. And they recognized him as being the very one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg for charitable gifts. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the portico named Solomon's, completely astonished, utterly astounded. 
And I love the words wonder, amazement, astonishment, because those words in Luke's first uh, work, the Gospel of Luke, the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, the words for wonder and amazement and astonishment are being directed towards the Christ child. And now here at the beginning of, of the Acts of the Apostles, these same words are being directed not to Christ directly, but to his followers, the body of Christ that he left behind when he was exalted as the head to the right hand of God the Father. And I think that's so cool how Luke parallels that. So the ninth hour, you need to know this, was a busy time at the temple courts. And all the people there, like I said, they'd probably seen this guy. You guys know some people that you've seen uh, begging for alms at different places in the city. You might recognize them, having seen them over and over again. And so they had seen him sitting outside the gate, or maybe they'd even given him charitable alms. That was a big deal in ancient Judaism, was to give out alms. He probably wasn't welcome beyond the gate because of his disability. The physical disability that he had would have prevented him from getting close to the presence of God. It would have, and this is all going back to, to Old Testament scriptures we don't have time to look at right now. But he would have sat outside those courts. He would not have been welcome because of his disability, because he would have been seen as, as, as unclean or impure. And so he would sit there begging for alms. And now we see him walking into the temple, maybe for the first time in his life, walking into the temple courts, into closer and closer into the proximity of God's very presence on earth, at least supposedly, would be the temple. We know that the church becomes the temple, right? Where God indwells. But the point is, he gets to go into the temple, into the presence of God, leaping and praising God for this newfound fullness of life. So the power of Christ was on display in this man's life, and everyone around him was amazed by what they were seeing. This reminds me of a conversation I once had with one of my dear friends who I love uh, love him. And we've been friends for many, many years. We grew up together. And uh, one time I, I picked uh, he, I, well, I picked him up and uh, I dropped him off at his house. It was late. And we got to talking around his breakfast table. And, um, and you need to know something about me if you're a guest or visitor. Uh, I'm not perfect. And in fact, even before I became a Christian, uh, I should say I wasn't perfect before I became a Christian. Even since then, I'm not perfect. But especially if you knew me before bowing the knee to Christ when I was 23, I mean, I, I, um, I lived quite a life, and he lived that life with me. Uh, and it was so it was interesting as I was talking to him, I had recently become a follower of Jesus, you know. Uh, we were in our 20s, I believe, at the time. And he knew that there was something different about me. No, this is actually later in the 30s. This is after we moved back to plant the church. So he recognized that there was something different about the bin that he saw now and the bin that he had grown up with, okay? And so he's asking me these questions about my newfound faith in Christ. And one of the things, I kid you not, that most astonished him out of all the stuff we talked about was my claim that I was free of the guilt and the shame of all of what I had done and all of what I had experienced, all of what I had done to myself and to others in word, deed, and thought much of which he had been privy to. And he was shocked by that. He, he had had this front row seat to these, these decades of, of sinful self-indulgence. And he had walked that road as well, like I said. So, so he asks if I feel guilty or ashamed about all those things I had done in those days. 
And I, I straightforwardly, I looked at him in the eyeballs and I said that I was not proud of those decisions I made. I was not proud of those thoughts and those words and those actions and sometimes the inactions. But I didn't carry around guilt and shame for all that stuff. And he just looked at me for a long moment. And I think he knew I was telling the truth. And then he just simply responded, I just can't believe that. He didn't see me healing a paralyzed man instantaneously, but he saw something in my life that was just as seemingly impossible for him to comprehend, and that was freedom from guilt and shame in this life. This was the power of Christ being revealed in my life, and it was recognized by others that God had placed in my life. I think of freedom from the guilt and the shame of sin. Please hear me. That's something that everyone who has trusted in Jesus Christ should be experiencing. And if you feel guilt and shame, that burden of guilt and shame, if you ever read The Pilgrim's Progress, you pick back up that burden and you put it back on, then let's remind each other to leave that burden at the foot of the cross where it belongs. Because we should all be experiencing that freedom of guilt and shame. But what are some of the other ways that our Christian lives could showcase the power of Christ for the people he has sovereignly placed along our paths? Now, now sure, there's times, uh, there was a lady that, that could not, uh, she was a friend of mine, a small business owner in the neighborhood, and they couldn't have a baby. And not everybody does, and that's not God's will for everybody. But she, I said I'd pray. And she knew I was a Christian. She knew I was a pastor. And I said, I'm, I'm going to pray. And I did pray with her and for her in the name of Jesus Christ. And then COVID happened. And I, didn't, and I found out just the other day that they, they finally had a child. And again, I'm not saying that God promises that everybody will have their own physical descendants. But what I'm saying is, like, next time I see her, I'm going to say that was an answer to prayer. And so those things can happen. But think about other ways that Christ's power can be showcased in your life. It could be radical generosity that just makes no sense to people. It could be unbelievable hospitality that, again, makes no sense to our culture. It could be immeasurable mercy or unconditional love and forgiveness where you're willing to forgive someone even though they don't deserve to be forgiven. You're willing to love somebody even though they're the very opposite of lovable. It could be strong, joy-filled marriages, or when they're not strong and joy-filled, to then on the back end see the power of reconciliation at work in our lives, in our marriages, in our relationships. It could be a parent's patience and kindness toward their kids. It could be freedom from fear and anxiety, maybe unlikely perseverance, even joy in the midst of suffering. Folks, I'm not here to put a guilt trip on you so that you feel bad if you're not experiencing every one of those things. But what I will tell you is that we as followers of Jesus Christ must believe that Christ is fully capable of empowering us to live such lives as I just described to you and much, much more. And as we trust him and rely on his power, it will be obvious to everybody around us that something unusual is taking place. But we can't stop there. If we never give the credit to Christ, then people will just chalk it up to, I don't know, luck or circumstance or probably self-effort, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, making it happen, whatever else. They'll attribute it to something other than Christ if we are silent. 
And that leads us to the second part of our passage. As Christians, we must explain the power of Christ. We must give explanation to what people are seeing in our lives individually, in our families, in our church family, in the big C church all around the world. In our passage, Peter uses the display of Christ's power to point out the person and the purpose of Jesus Christ. And watch how he pivots off that. He uses this incredible display of the power to point to the person and to the purpose of Christ. And as we talked about two weeks ago, when we talked about the gospel and how you have to contextualize the gospel, and depending on who your audience is, you're going to contextualize. The content's not going to change, but you, but you can frame it differently. Well, who's he talking to? He's talking to crowds of, of first century Jews living in Jerusalem. So how is he going to contextualize it? Well, I'm not going to go into all the details of how he does it, but as I read through these next passages, these next verses, just listen to how he contextualizes this for a first century Jewish audience living in Jerusalem. You're going to hear a lot about the law, the prophets, Moses, Abraham, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Samuel, the fathers. You're going to hear a lot. You're going to hear a lot of scripture passages from the Hebrew scriptures. So just, just pay attention to that. So the power of Christ as we see, reveals the person of Christ. Every time the power of Christ is seen, is experienced, it reveals the person of Christ, and we get to be the ones to point to his person. In other words, when he does what only he can do, it reveals that he is, in fact, who he says he is. That's why one of the most powerful uh, witnesses that we have to the reality of the resurrection, the fact that he is, in fact, exalted right in the Father, is simply things like the way that we love one another. When people see this supernatural love with which we love one another, they know that we're his disciples and he is who he claimed to be. So let's look at verses 12 through 16 at how the power of Christ reveals the person of Christ, how Peter explains that. It says, but when Peter saw this, all these people coming up, Amazed, It says, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why are you staring at us as though by our own power or godliness, we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. Now, I'll just point out two things on on those verses. I love the humility of Christ's servants how they glorify Christ. They don't take credit. It's not that they don't just don't take credit for themselves. It's that they don't just leave it silent either. They give the glory to Christ. And I also love right there how it shows how Christ himself was God's servant, his faithful servant, his suffering servant. And this servant language is connecting in with Isaiah and the suffering servant, the songs of the suffering servant in Isaiah 52, 53 and elsewhere. And there's so much we could unpack here, but I'm going to leave it alone and I'm going to move on. But they glorify Christ and, and God, the Father himself, glorifies Christ, his servant. All right, let's go to the rest of verse 13. It says, So who is this servant of God, Jesus? Well, he's going to clarify. And guys, this is the gospel that he's sharing. He says, Jesus, the one whom you handed over. These are literally the people that were yelling, crucify him, crucify him. These crowds, some of them. He said, the one whom you handed over and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him, i.e. he was innocent. (laughs) But you disowned. Not just anyone, 
You disowned the holy and righteous one. The holy one is language for God in the Hebrew scriptures. The righteous one. And asked for a murderer to be granted to you. That word is literally like gifted to you. Like, I want a gift. I want this murderer Barabbas instead of the, the holy and righteous one. And you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, whom God raised from the dead. That, that, that can also be translated the author of life. You put to death the author of life. Whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are all witnesses. So here we see the crucifixion and the resurrection. We just looked at the exaltation where Christ is exalted up to heaven. He's glorified by God the Father. And now we see the crucifixion and resurrection. This is the content of the gospel. And then we go to verse 16. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man, whom you see and know, And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. This perfect health is like this completeness, this wholeness. And this is a, it's kind of a convoluted sentence in Greek, and we won't get to all the different ways the different translations approach it. But I just want to point out the emphasis is on faith. The emphasis is on believing in this one that he just described. He said, he talks about faith in Jesus, who, who uh, uh, he talks about the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus, which is strengthened. Guys, the name of Jesus, when you talk about the name of God in scripture, the name of Jesus, that's pointing to his identity and his authority. So it was the name of Jesus. In other words, it was Jesus, it was faith in Jesus that accomplished this incredible thing that amazed them so much. And, you know, uh, there's a good case to be made for it. Was it the, or is he talking about the, the faith of the apostles to accomplish the miracle? Was it the faith of the, the paralyzed man who was healed? I tend to think, and I think there's room for the, the faith of all of the above uh, that are involved. It's kind of like when they take the paralyzed man down through the roof and, and it's the faith of his friends, it's his faith, it's everybody's faith, right? And so the emphasis on faith. So the power of Christ reveals the person of Christ who is the object of our faith, the only one who can be the object of our faith. Uh, So the power of Christ reveals the person of Christ. It also reveals the purpose of Christ. And this is what I want to show you. His purpose is salvation. Not not just in the justification, not just in the one time the gavel comes down and you you are not guilty, right? Because you trusted in Jesus. I'm talking about Past salvation, justification, I'm talking about current salvation, God saving us from sin in this fallen world through sanctification, through, through this growing Christ-likeness. I'm talking about future salvation, our glorification to share in the glory of Jesus Christ. This is the purpose of Christ for us. It's salvation. In verses 17 and 19, Peter explains the requirement for salvation, and then in the rest of the passage that we're going to look at today, he explains the results. So first we're going to see the requirement of salvation, then we're going to see the results. Verse 17, and now brothers, you see how he went from men of Israel to brothers? He like, he's, he's bringing it, he's bringing it in. He's getting closer relationally. And now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers also did. But the things which God previously announced by the mouths of all the prophets, he's talking about the Hebrew scriptures, that that his Christ, God's Christ, his anointed one, would suffer. 
He has fulfilled in this way that he just explained. Now you get the wonderful therefore. He says, therefore, repent and return or turn. And, and we looked at this two weeks ago, but repentance in the Greek context, it means a change of mind, changing one's mind. But there's a Hebrew backdrop to that that is turning from one thing to another thing. It's turning from our sin to God and his salvation. And so all this is at play here, repent and return. And we just talked about faith, right? So again, we see this clustering of terms that all work in somewhat synonymous fashion to articulate the only appropriate response to the saving work of, of, of Jesus Christ, to his personal work, and that is repentance and faith. They're two sides of the same coin. Repentance and faith. Repentance leading to faith. It's all part of the same complex, two sides of the same coin, but that's the only appropriate response to this good news, and it's the only requirement for salvation. Repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. So after explaining the, this requirement for salvation, that is repentance and faith in Jesus, Peter turns to this extended explanation of the results of our salvation in Christ. In other words, what we can look forward to as followers in Christ. And he goes in, in Acts chapter 2, he spent much more time on the content of the gospel, right? He just does that in a very truncated way here, but he spends a lot more time on the results of our salvation, okay? And so that's what we're going to look at for the remainder of the passage. So let's pick it up in verse 19, halfway through. So he says, therefore, repent and return. And then look at the purpose statement here. So why, what, what, what does that do? What does repenting and turning do? So that your sins may be wiped away. Back then, they, their, their paper that they used, uh, the ink set on top, it didn't absorb in. So when you wanted to erase the ink, uh, you just wiped it off and it was completely gone. You know, it didn't even leave a mark. You weren't like erasing, you know. And, and that's, that's what we're seeing here, that our sins are like that, that they're just wiped away. They're completely cleaned off the slate. That your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send, we're looking future here, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive, seated at the right hand of God the Father, until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouths of his holy prophets from ancient times. Again, going back to saying God said this in the Hebrew scriptures. So I just want to point out two of the results of salvation, and that is forgiveness, sweet forgiveness of sin. The kind of forgiveness that erases our sin and leaves no trace. No reason to carry around guilt or shame ever again for the rest of your life and for the rest of eternity. I don't care what you did or what you didn't do or what you said or what you failed to say or however bad you think you screwed up. You don't have to hang on to that guilt and shame. That's what he's saying here. That's the kind of forgiveness that Christ offers. So we see forgiveness and then we see future blessing. Things aren't always going to be as hard as they are in this life. Part of the hardness allows us to shine like stars, Scripture calls it, in this broken, messed up world so that more and more people can, can see the power of Christ in us, in our lives, in the church. But it's not always going to be like this. There's going to be a restoration of all things. That Jesus Christ is going to return to the earth. Just like he ascended, he will come back down. We saw at the beginning of Acts. 
and there will be a restoration, times of refreshment. Moses said, Luke writes, so here we go with that Jewish context. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your countrymen. To him you shall listen regarding everything he says to you. That comes from Deuteronomy 18, and it quickly became messianic in uh, the, the world of the Israelites and later Judaism. Uh, they saw that as messianic. This is the one, this is one particular prophet like Moses. Uh, And then he goes on, and it shall be that every soul that does not listen to that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people, completely cut off from God's people and from God, therefore. Verse 24, and likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel, the first writing prophet, and his successors onward have also announced these days. So... I'll just point this out. The context for what he said there, the one who does not heed will be completely, utterly destroyed from from among his people. Um, That's taken out of Leviticus chapter uh, 23, verse 29. You know what that's talking about, Leviticus? It's talking about someone who would disregard the day of atonement. The one day, the climax of the Israelite religious system the one day on which the, the one person, the high priest, covered in the blood of an innocent sacrifice could go into the Holy of Holies in the center of the temple and apply the atoning blood of the atoning sacrifice. And if you disregarded that, if you did not fast, if you did not uh, rest, it was a Sabbath, then Leviticus twenty three twenty nine says you're going to be cut off. You, you've disregarded God's atonement. And, and so now it's in the context of disregarding Christ that he brings us up as a consequence of rejecting the atonement that that atonement looked forward to. And then verse 25, it is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant. Again, he's talking to Jewish people. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant, which God ordained with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God raised up his servant for you first, and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Bless you by turning you from your wicked ways. As Christians, we're not always going to explain it like this, depending on who our audience is. And we're going to see other audiences down the road in Acts. But as Christians, we must explain the power of Christ that people are going to see in and through and around us. Um, you remember my friend I talked about who could not believe that I had experienced freedom from the guilt and the shame of all my sin. You remember that guy? Well, by God's grace, on that night, sitting at his breakfast table, I got to share the gospel with him. He was astounded that I said I I didn't bear guilt or shame for my sin, and that was the perfect opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ with him, to let him know that the Son of God came down to the earth, took on flesh, lived a perfect life that, that I could never live, that none of us could ever live, died a death that we deserved in paying the penalty for our sins, rose from the dead, was exalted, ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand, and is one day going to come to judge and to establish his kingdom. I got to share that with my friend. All because of that, that work of God in my life. I got to tell him why I was able to experience that. I hope, I hope he remembers that conversation. Um, I hope he remembers it. I hope he gets to experience the power of Christ like that too. I do. My heart breaks. Like, I know there's no other way to get rid of that guilt and shame. I tried. 
Everyone does. There's no other way. It always leaves a mark when you try to wipe it off. Uh, I hope I get more opportunities to have that conversation with that friend in particular and that I continue to have opportunities to explain what's happening in and through and around my life and in our church and in the church in a way that allows me to give all the credit to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So how can we explain the power of Christ in our lives in a way that doesn't feel forced or vague? You know, like I get it. I'm fine with people scoring touchdowns and doing this or the sign of the cross or people winning Oscars or Emmys saying, I want to first thank God. Like, that's fine. But that's not it, right? Like our lives should, should, should not be so brief in our, our explanation of of, of the gospel, of, of giving credit to Christ. So how can we explain the power of Christ in our lives in a, in, a, in a richer, more full way? I think it begins with humility. I think it begins, and guys, I, we've had some crushing experiences in our church family over the last year, really years, and just heartbreaking stuff, you know? We've had it in our own family, but I think the blessing that has come out of that is that it has so humbled us. I'll speak for myself on this. It has been so humbling to recognize how ultimately powerless I am to do really anything in my own life or in the life of another person. But what a blessing humility is if that humility allows us to recognize that we are ultimately weak and powerless, that we're just the clay pots, broken usually, uh, that psalm struck me this last week that I'm, I'm like a broken vessel. I'm like broken shards of pottery, David said. Like, we're so broken. And yet God chooses our little clay pot lives, both individually and corporately, to reveal his surpassing glory. Like, how cool when we actually recognize that and have the humility that our humility actually leads to boldness. It's the only place I've seen bold humility is in the Christian faith, where our humility leads to a boldness because it's no longer about us on display for the world to show how amazing we are and all this performance anxiety in doing so, knowing that we can never perform perfectly. <laughs> but when we can set all that garbage aside and just put the spotlight on Jesus, you know? Just showcase what he's doing in and through our lives. And so let's share our struggles. Because I know the holidays are hard for people. Like I know we struggle with depression and anxiety and fear and relational conflict and discord and idols and dissatisfaction and emptiness and all these things. Okay? But let's share those struggles. Let's share our weaknesses. And as we trust in Christ together, and I hope to God that we as a church family will do that. And if you're not in a church family, we welcome you to ours. Because we're going to do that together, and as we do, we will have, I promise you, plenty of opportunities to point to the, the, the surpassing power, the immeasurable power of Christ, his saving work in our lives and in our families and in our church families. And I'll just close with a quote from Dr. Daryl Bach. He's one of my favorite Luke-Acts scholars. He loves to nerd out on, on Luke and Acts. And I love to nerd out on what he nerds out about. Um, but he summarizes today's passage, and I think it helps us to see, because we see this as a miracle. We're like, oh, miracles, that, I, that's not going to happen in my life. I'm not going to miraculously heal this paralyzed guy who's asking for money or whatever. And I think we discount this passage. But listen to how he frames it. 
I think this is important. It, it helps us to see how we can continue this work of witnessing that began with the apostles. He writes this, in sum, talking about this passage, the first miracle by the apostles shows how Jesus can give new life. You ever wonder why he took this destitute guy who is disabled and, and broken and, and poor and completely dependent on others and their grace or their mercy? And why he healed that guy then at that point in the, in the history of the church? Shows how Jesus can give new life and brings the new era to people. Jesus is now at work through his, his apostolic representatives, including us. He was through the apostles themselves, but also in that tradition, that apostolic tradition, we are his representatives, folks. And so he says he's now at work through his apostolic representatives. The lame man receives far more than silver and gold could give him. I think our world has really low expectations for what they want, what we want. And I think this shows that. But now he can live in a new full life. Of course he could care less about silver and gold now. He's been given a new life. Compassion led Peter to meet the man's needs at a spiritual and physical level, both, and to make clear that it was the power of Jesus that enabled the man's new mobile life. Mission led Peter to go where people in need were and to respond. Can I say that one more time? Mission led Peter to go where people in need were and to respond. Earlier, Jesus had called Peter to be a fisher of men. God took the initiative to bring needy people to Peter, and Peter took the initiative to bring Jesus to someone who needed him. And by doing so, God was working and speaking about his work through his servant Jesus, who in turn is working through his own servants. None of this took place in a corner. God was impressively at work. In addition, God's promise was being realized and people were changed as a result. I'll leave it at that. Um, Next week, we are going to see what happens when the the so-called power and influence and authority of the religious leaders try and flex on uh, the church and try and uh, uh, do a bit of a knockout punch on this, this power that's being manifested through these Christians. And spoiler alert, it does not go well for them. So we're going to get into that next week. I hope you guys will be here for it. Uh, let me pray.